So December 11th, the Saturday night was driving home from dinner, my wife and I got a text from our chief technology officer saying, you know, we have a problem. Can you give me a call? That was very unusual. And welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who is definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, I'm looking forward to a good kibitz in this episode. A good what? Kibitz, it means chat. And that, among other things, is what we'll be talking about today. So we're going to be talking about chatting. Uh, it's a good thing we're doing a podcast. <laughs> Brian, you always bring the jokes. Well, today we're talking about how to work inspired, how to create a corporate culture where employees all love to work. And it turns out happy employees are good for business. Who would have thought? Happy employees are very good for business. And our guest today is Aaron Ayn, an award-winning ex-CEO of UKG, formerly known as Kronos, which is a workforce management company who, by transforming his company's culture, built a billion-dollar business. And he now serves as executive chair of the UKG board of directors. And probably more importantly for our podcast today, he's also the author of Work Inspired. How exciting. We can't wait to get stuck in. Well, welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you both. And, and I'm looking forward to the conversation and having a little kibitz together here. <laughs> Definitely. So are we. Well, we always like to start by simplifying things a little. So maybe if we start off, how would you introduce yourself to somebody at a dinner party? Oh, gosh, if they, you know, ask me if I think they're directed at me personally, I might talk about where I live and and my family. If I if I think they're directed at me, what I do professionally, I go and say, oh, I'm in the software business. And that usually leads to a question, what kind of software? And um, but I uh, rarely, if ever, say what I do in that business. So a lot of people find out months later and they go, oh, my goodness, you were the CEO or you are the CEO. And and they're surprised, but I'd never talk about that. And so it matters what the conversation is. And I think that's maybe a good sort of segue into maybe without giving away any spoilers, what Work Inspired is all about. I mean, the subtext of that is how to build an organization where everyone loves to work. And, and one of the key elements of that is, is humility. So maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, look, Brian, I believe deeply that great organizations are powered by great people. Great people produce better products. They deliver better service, better products, better service, better outcomes. And it's really not that hard. Um, the challenge of all that is that um, to have it in, uh, in an organization with great people, you have to have an engaged environment where people um, you know, feel wanted and trusted and valued and and engaged and and so humility is a big part for me of that you know the world doesn't revolve around any one person it certainly doesn't revolve around the ceo or executive leadership what brought you about to actually write the book in the first place oh gosh um really good question alice it wasn't on my bucket list to write a book have either of you ever written a book i haven't but i've heard it's really hard 
it's really <laughs> hard. It's so much work. And so I didn't expect that. Um, but I, I always talked about with our customers, our potential customers, our employees, our partners, kind of anyone who would listen about my belief system about creating a great place to work and why it was so important and why it would make us, it made us, makes us a better partner with our customers and, and why it's just the right way to do it. And, and people started saying to me, you should write a book about that. You know, it's something that people don't talk about enough. That's amazing. And I, I know something that really struck me in the book was you mentioned around the effects your parents' attitudes towards helping others had on you. Um, and I know that my parents have been a huge inspiration for me as I've been growing up as well. So I could definitely relate to that. How do you think you maybe took those experiences through you know your your growth as a child into an adult and transferred that into your your leadership and your career my parents their most important thing was their family their community um all those things creating a better place uh, they were children of immigrants themselves and so their parents immigrated had nothing when they came to america and started from scratch um, so they came from you know very humble roots in that way but they just had a belief, you know, that uh, um, nobody's more important than anybody else. And they taught us that. And, and you learn from that example. And then combining with that, I think it was in my inner soul at the same time that it, it resonated with me. Aaron, was there a particular moment that made you realize that employees could become a powerful strategic weapon? Because it's kind of a sort of an obvious point, but it's also non-obvious. And it certainly isn't something that's that plays out in businesses every day. I mean, people pay a lot of lip service to it, but when was that kind of moment that made you realize the employees were a critical, critical part of things? Uh, Brian, I don't think there was a moment. I think we all go on these personal and professional journeys. And I think um, multiple interactions over many years made me realize that when I surrounded myself with great people who were deeply engaged, the results were better. And so I, I think I just learned it as I went along. I didn't have like, a, like some people say, who was your great mentor? I didn't really have one. I'm kind of self-taught by listening and observing and, and watching and, and learning. And, and, and I think that contributed. So no one thing, but a whole bunch of things all together. And I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm still observing. So that makes sense to me. What is maybe a bit less intuitive is the concept in your book of being an unleader. You know, most of what you've just described, there was sort of, let's call it trial and error. You know, the more you saw of something, the, the more obvious it became and, and, and maybe seeing people, you know, good people work and motivated and all of those things produced good results. But the concept of being an unleader is not that intuitive. How did you, well, first of all, could you explain that and how did that kind of come about? Yeah, basically, it, it talks about we can't take ourselves so seriously. We, um, you know, your egos can get out of check, as I said, when you have these big responsibilities and big titles. And so I think the value of an unleader is understanding that you're no, no more important than other people who work in your organization. You know, I try to listen to everyone I interact with really carefully. I don't feel that I have the answer to all the questions. I'm learning and growing all the time. 
everyday business engagements, um, I do that. So when I have a meeting, I try not to sit, for example, at the head of the table, or I try to sit next to people when I'm talking one-on-one, -on -one, not across from people, to, you know, as a way to tell them that we're equal in that way. There's not a block between us. And, and uh, so the whole unleader idea is that um, we can be great leaders without, you know, being demanding and forceful and, and, and throw our titles around and our positions around to get things done. And I think another really interesting point that I read around, um, you know, you say that authenticity obviously is a, a very important part in business. Um, and yet you mentioned there around that you over prepare to be authentic. I was quite interested to understand a bit more about your thoughts on that that I over-prepared to be authentic. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, well, well look, um, it's not necessarily that I, I wouldn't use the word for myself to over-prepare, but I'm conscious of it. And, and um, you know, I, I love it when people react to you telling them things that they never expected you to tell them, to share with them. So my standard practice is I always tell people the truth, always tell people the truth. That includes sometimes telling people when they ask me something, I don't know the answer to that. Or I say, I know the answer to that, but I can't tell you. I'm sorry. It's one of those things, but always tell them the truth. And so that authenticity comes out in those ways by always telling and telling the truth and communicating and being transparent and and so I, I think about that and I work at it all the time. What are your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic and and working from anywhere and, and this remote work and, and where do you think it's all going to go? Look I was really scared in the beginning of the pandemic and if I was scared about our business, our families, our societies, I can only imagine, I remember thinking how our employees are feeling. And so I would do these weekly videos literally every week for seven to 10 minutes, one take ad hoc, had in my mind what I wanted to talk about, but that authenticity had to come out then. So I would tell them on some of them, look, I'm worried. I'm scared. I'm sure many of you are. We have to support each other and help each other. That was examples of authenticity there. I remember one time people were working so hard getting used to working at home and being parents and teachers and caregivers and employees all at the same time. Schools were closed and you know all those things. And, and so I remember telling on one of the videos, I looked at the camera and I would do low tech. My wife would use my iPhone and be in my backyard and my dog would be on my lap sometimes. And I told them, I said, look, I, I'm like worried that everyone's too stressed out or everyone's working hard and trying to balance all this. I said, you have my permission in the middle of the day to take a nap, to read a book, to play a video game, to go for a walk. You know, the second part of your question is, I think we're still figuring out what the future is gonna look like of work, Brian. And sometimes I listen to other leaders say with such certainty about what the future is going to be like. And I sit there quietly in my head going, how do they know that? Like, I don't think any of us really know what the future is going to be like about how we're going to work, where we're going to work, what we're going to do. It's still being sorted out. And 
I think maybe that's a good uh, a good way to sort of segue. We're quite a long way into a cybersecurity podcast. For anyone listening to this, they may be quite surprised. It sounds more like a, a business uh, podcast of some kind, which to some extent, I guess it is. Um, but if you sort of talk about leadership and you talk about authenticity and you talk about being uncertain, um, that kind of holds true maybe for day-to-day type business. But what happens when things get really stressful. Um, and I'm talking now in the context of managing the fallout from a ransomware attack which uh, that you suffered. Uh, could you first of all tell us how you found out about the attack and how did some of the things that you you spoke you speak about in the book sort of play out in that scenario? Yeah. Uh, so December 11th, a Saturday night, was driving home from dinner, my wife, and I got a text from our chief technology officer saying, you know, we have a problem, can you give me a call? That was very unusual. So um, it became clear once I talked to him that evening, uh, what was going on, still uncertain how we were gonna deal with it, had not been through this before. To answer your specific question, the next day on Sunday, we gathered our leaders together who were directly connected to this. And we also had outside consultants, third parties who were some were on retainer to us, others were recommended to us. And we sat down and talked about um, what our plan was going to be. One part of it was how to deal with our systems that were unavailable. The other part was how to go communicate with our customers who couldn't use the systems. It impacted about 2,000 of our 70,000 customers. So while it was a small number of customers, if you were one of those 2,000, it was horrible. And so um, the context of how I'm answering this is that I went around the room all doing this virtually saying, um, okay, from the experts, what do you recommend we do? And through a set of conversations and listening to their recommendations, I made a decision on the spot that I wanted to treat our customers the way I would want to be treated in a similar situation. And what that means specifically is full transparency tell them what we know, tell them what we don't know, tell them some things we know, but we can't talk about it because of regulatory um, aspects of it. And at the end of the day, that proved to be a great decision. And quite frankly, it wasn't the first recommendation of the outside third-party experts because there were concerns about legal considerations, compliance considerations, but It's just something that I thought was really important. And after we got through it, so many of our customers said to me, you know, while it was horrible for us, horrible for you, the impacted ones, the way you handled it was we had been through this with other vendors. No, none of them handled it the way um, you handled it, Um, specifically in this area of transparency, over communicating, et cetera. And it's, it's funny because I think what you mentioned there around, you know, your customers saying to you, we've been through this with other vendors and they did not respond in the way that you guys responded with that transparency. And it strikes me that transparency, especially when it comes to cyber attacks, is often, sadly, in, in a way, is, is quite rare. Why do you think that is? Because I think, you know, coming from the customer success um, side of things, customer service side of things myself, I think the way that you thought about you know, treat our customers how I would want to be treated in those situations sounds very logical and respectful to your customer base. 
what do you think holds customers or companies back from following that kind of mentality? Yeah, it's the uncertainty. You don't have all the answers. You'll say something wrong. You'll say something wrong that will be used against you in the future, um, et cetera. I, I guess, you know, um, look, the advisors, including the third party, you know, uh, threat forensics people, as well as the third party um, legal advice, you know, they're just trying to do their jobs and protect you and and try to reduce the risk. Um, for me, it wasn't about the risk. For me, it was about coming back to doing the right thing. And, and maybe I was uniquely positioned to do that after all my years of going through my various journeys as a leader, that I could make that decision with confidence. And I didn't feel that I needed to listen to these third parties when my point of view was different and contrary to what they wanted to do. I'm actually curious because you're probably in the 1% of organizations that do respond to these very, very difficult cyber incidents in that way. Many, many organizations take the very cautious risk averse approach based on the kind of advice that you got. Was there any fallout legal or regulatory in any, I think you operate at that stage uh, in over a hundred countries. So, I mean, there must've been a really, really difficult kind of regulatory landscape to navigate. It really, it did over time, of course, you know, how we had to report what we reported, but to answer that question in those opening days, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking about their systems were unavailable. They needed their systems to run their business. We needed to tell them what was going on. So I'm curious, I, I think that really resonates how the core values changed the way that you responded. You didn't respond in a more, let's call it a traditional way to these sorts of things. How did the values that you talk about in your book uh, show up in your people? How did your team respond to the situation in ways that may have been different if they'd been in another organization with a different leadership style? Yeah, so look, I can't say whether they would have responded differently in another organization. I can only judge what they did with us, but we had about 1,300 people over a six to eight week period give up everything, cancel vacations over the holidays, work Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Um, while we still had to keep running the business and move things forward for our other customers. And the 1,300 people who were working literally 20 hours a day, for me, it was the worst six weeks of my career until we got every turned everyone's systems to them. Um, uh, you know, um, I wasn't sleeping because I, I, I knew I know so many of the customers and felt just horrible about they were in the middle of this. And I would tell them I'd open every conversation apologizing to them what was going on. And I always told our employees who were focused on this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. But they knew it. And 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 they basically just said, OK, a lot of them, if not all of them got angry, angry. That's this bad group of people came in and and were trying to disrupt, destroy something we had spent 40 years creating. And you start a company to build great products and take care of your customers and take care of your employees. And then these other people come in and try to disrupt that or do disrupt that. Um, so a lot of them were angry and that anger turned into resolve to work together to get these systems back returned and do what they had to do. I was uh, so proud of everyone who did this and, and 
just amazing, amazing people. And I think we've talked quite a lot today around the serious side of, of cybersecurity. And thank you so much, Aaron, for sharing that story with us and our listeners. And I think they'll take you know, a huge amount of advice from the information that you've given there. But we also like to touch a little bit on maybe the fun side of uh, some projects that our, our guests have been looking into and working on. I know that you're working on a, or you have been working on a project called Workforce Home. Um, we'll be kind of interested to understand, and for our listeners as well, how did that come about and it sounds like you really took the fun seriously let's say with that project this was years ago it was april 1st and uh um came up with a whole video campaign and introduction no, no product behind it um around workforce home which was meant to capture the idea of helping you manage your family through technology scheduling when people have time using various rooms in the house or scheduling when meals are going to happen, the way we schedule employees at work and keeping track of things. And so it was meant to be, well, it was an April Fool's spoof sent out to the whole company about a new product we were releasing called Workforce Home. And what was so fun about it was only a very few people knew about it. And uh, when it went out, I got notes from some people ranging from this is the greatest. This is why I love working for this company to others in service going. This is what really frustrates me about here. How do you expect us to support a product and announce it like this when you've never trained us on it? You know, how are we supposed to do our jobs? And so, you know, for me, that was like checkmate. It caught everybody by surprise. I think that's uh, that's amazing. And would love to have spoken for another hour just uh, just on this topic because I think it's so critical. But um, just like to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And we always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions. Looking back over your career, what would be the one insight that you'd wish you'd learned sooner or that you could go back and tell your younger self? one hmm. well, it's probably not one i if i had to say someone's how important it is to over communicate how important the people are on your team in order to you to, for you to be successful and then the role of a manager yeah people join organizations because of the organization they leave because of who they work for and then what are you reading or listening to at the moment? Is there anything that you'd uh, recommend to our listeners, apart from your own book, of course? <laughs> well, I'm not a big reader. You know, I've worked so hard for so long. I just stepped down um, July 1st, 2021 from my full-time job as a CEO after 17 years. And, um, and people kept giving me all these ideas of things to do. And I, in July and August, I just wanted to kind of clear my head. And finally, I started telling people on the top of my list is um, no lists. And so I've tried to kind of follow that a little bit right now. So I like that I'm being more spontaneous and more flexible. A final question, looking towards the future, maybe this time next year, where do you think we'll be in the world of employee relations and what trends do you think we'll be spotting? Certainly diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging are here to stay. And I think for really good reasons and companies are better. The one that worries me right now, worries me right now, Alice, is 
this idea of the definition of work and where people are going to work in certain businesses. You know, manufacturers, retailers, healthcare, the staff has to be there. You can't not be there. Um, but other ones, knowledge workers or, you know, yeah, knowledge workers for the most part, um, it's not clear to me that the new model is going to work as well. I, I feel a little bit like organizations maybe are not as productive and not as effective. And I think there is a value in having FaceTime with each other that's more than just periodic. I don't think we're going to go back to five days a week in the office, but I think there's going to have to be a balance between where it is today and where it will be one to three years from now. And I think we're all kind of figuring that out. And finally, Aaron, where can our listeners learn more? Where can they get the book? Oh, gosh, the best way to buy the book, at least um, in the you know North America, perhaps around the world, online, either the audio version or the written version is um, uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. I know they both have them available. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for your time today. We've really, really enjoyed our discussion. And as you can probably hear, very infused by uh, everything that you've had to say and then share with us today. And thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Until next time, 